Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Elsa Hart about her latest mystery novel, The Cabinets of Barnaby Maine. When I last spoke to Elsa in April 2019, it was in reference to her acclaimed series featuring the former imperial librarian Li Du. Set in early 18th century China, that series explores a world in which the Ming Dynasty has fallen not long before and the first Qing emperor is attempting to establish his hold on the country, at times encouraging, but more often restricting, the activities of foreigners. The new book moves west, introducing us to some of those foreigners on their own turf, but the time period is essentially the same. Welcome to Queen Anne's London. It has been suggested that the surface of the earth was once smooth, and that beneath it was an abyss filled with water. After many years, the crust of the earth became dry and brittle. At a command from God, it cracked, and the waters that had been trapped within surged and roiled through the broken land. Thus the flood was not a deluge from above that covered the mountains, but a welling from below that created them. The world inherited by man was but the jagged ruin left by that great devastation. This was just one theory that was being debated in Signore Covo's coffee house one drizzly spring morning. The year was 1703. Queen Anne occupied the throne, and for the citizens of London, there were enough new laws, new wars, and new books to sustain any argument. But Covo's was popular because it inspired a more fanciful variety of conversation. Its walls and ceilings, encrusted with objects intended to provoke wonder and speculation, made serious gentlemen feel comfortable entertaining thoughts of subterranean giants, unknown civilizations, and even, with the appropriate tone of deprecation, magic. Upstairs, Signore Covo reclined in a chair before the hearth, legs outstretched, affecting the casual elegance his English companion would expect from a secretive Italian noble. Wearing a bemused half-smile, he watched Mr. Simon Babington, silver-buttoned and bewigged, pace across the floor. I am not an ignorant man, Covo. I know that through a glass lens a man may observe living creatures in a drop of water. Fiery Noctiluca holds no mystery for me, and as for corpuscular philosophy, not even Newton himself could confound you, said Covo. And he has tried, said Babington. He has tried. So you see, there is much about the world that I understand. But for all my knowledge, I cannot fathom how a man as aloof, as conceited, as uncooperative as Sir Barnaby Maine has attained such clout in our community. And now, please join me in welcoming Elsa Hart. Hi, Elsa. I look forward to talking with you again. Hi, I look forward to talking to you, too. Thanks for having me. Listeners who would like to hear more about your background and the Lidu novels can listen to our previous conversation by going to newbooksnetwork.com and searching for your name. So let's start right away with the new novel. Uh, What drew you away from 
Jing China and why it's London in particular? So something I, I didn't know before I started writing novels is that, you know, by the time you're finished, you've created so many ghosts, sort of ghosts of characters who didn't end up finding a place in the story or ghosts of plot points that had to be deleted. And the cabinets of Barnaby Main actually started with one of one of those ghosts from an earlier book. Uh, so when I was writing my first book, which, as you said, was uh, set in, in China at the beginning of the Qing dynasty, I modeled one of its characters on a man named James Cunningham. And he was a Scottish ship's surgeon who journeyed to China in 1696. And when he announced he was going to do it, it was, you know, a really big deal because very few Westerners were going to China at that point. He, he received instructions uh, from, among other people, a, uh, a London apothecary on the proper methods for collecting and preserving plants to bring back to England. So the character who was inspired by, by Cunningham didn't end up playing as big a role in that first book as I thought he would, but I'd done a lot of research that I hadn't used. And I'd learned a little bit about this community of collectors who were waiting in England for items like Cunningham's pressed pressed plants. And I'd learned that these collectors weren't just interested in the beautiful, rare, never before seen flowers. They were interested in everything. I mean, they wanted grasses and ferns and thistles and I think they put into the words, the vilest weeds, everything, um, because they, they thought that if they could have sort of an example of everything that existed in the world and arrange it on their shelves, it would be a way of understanding the world. And I always wanted to follow those plants back from China to England and enter the community of these collectors. So for my fourth book, that's what I decided to do. And that's how I came to write The Cabinets of Barnaby Maine. Your opening paragraphs give a clear sense of the cultural climate in London in 1703, or at least the part of that climate that is relevant to your story. Uh, what is it about the early 18th century that so appeals to you as a writer? It, it, to be honest, I, I sort of found my way there by accident. It it began with this with a visit to the Astronomical Observatory in Beijing, where I learned about the Jesuits who helped the emperor build it in the late 1600s. And that's what hooked me into this period in history. And I sort of can't, can't seem to find my way out. Uh, I've just now shifted my attention to a different part of the world. But I do like that the late 1600s and the early 1700s feel like such an in-between time in England. Uh, it stood out when I was doing research that a lot of sources focus on the earlier 1600s, which were defined by the English Civil War and the plague and the restoration of the monarchy and the great fire of London. And then it often sort of skips to the 1720s and the Georgian era uh, and the period in between. There's this overlap of earlier ways of thinking and later ones. So there's kind of a little bit of a sense that anything goes in 1700, like, and you don't really know as someone living then what's going to get you in trouble. So like, it's kind of okay to be Catholic now, but not really. And it's kind of okay to be interested in occult studies, but not really. And the monarchy is kind of stable, but you can't really trust that that's going to to trust that yet because there's such a recent history of, of turmoil. Um, and you really see this in-betweenness in the collections that were being made, that some of them were built on this 
earlier model of the cabinets of curiosities full of items that were meant to shock or just inspire wonder. And others were more like contemporary museums or, or research institutions. They were really meant to be organized repositories that were going to further scientific knowledge. And these different approaches, of course, led to tensions and disagreements among the collectors, which is always a great place for a, for a mystery writer to hang out. Exactly. It's not an accident that the first place we encounter is a coffee house and its owner, Signore Covo. Uh, even today, coffee shops serve purposes beyond uh, just serving coffee. Uh, but that was much more true in the 18th century London. What can you tell us about the coffee house as an institution? Coffee, yes. I, I like learning about this because, you know, we all, including me before I went into it, associate England so much with tea. It's so ubiquitous. But, but the, the first coffee house opened in London in uh, 1652, and it was owned by a Greek man named Pasqua Rosé, who had developed a taste for coffee when he was in Turkey and decided to import it to England. And within 50 years, there were probably almost a thousand coffee houses in London. It really took off in, in popularity. But it wasn't something that people tended to drink alone in their houses. It was something that, it was a drink that was part of a social gathering. So coffee houses were the gathering place for gentlemen, and they were open to men only, not, not women. And it was where business was conducted. It was where you went to be seen, to debate political issues, to read newspapers, to meet meet with friends or with clubs, uh, clubs in this sense being these kind of informal groups with a shared interest in something like botany or literature. And actually, when I went to London to do some research for this book, there's this wonderful audio tour that you can take where you wander through the neighborhoods, these labyrinthine alleys. Uh, listening to the history of the coffee houses and sort of going past the places where they would have been. So um, talk about ghosts. Signore Covo, um, he strikes me as a cross between a charlatan and a fixer. Um, he's charming, but he's amoral. You needn't reveal what role he ultimately plays in the story, because that would be to give away uh, the fun of discovering. But why did you choose to open with him? And what can you say about him without giving away too much? So... Kovo owns a coffee a coffee house uh, that is a kind of parody of a collector's home. So its walls are crusted with objects of all kinds in no discern discernible order. So skulls and statuettes and corals and bottles and weapons and all sorts, you know, hedgehogs. Uh, and he claims he claims that he can procure rarities unlike any before seen in England. So I I think when we meet him, he's completing the sale of a mummified merman. Um, and his character was actually inspired by, by a real person. His name was James Salter, and he was a servant of uh, Hans Sloan, who owned possibly the largest collection in England at the end of the 17th century. And when Salter left Sloan's service, he changed his name to Don Saltero and opened Don Saltero's Coffee House, where he displayed rarities that were probably given to him by his former employer. But he embellished. So in a catalog of the things that were in that coffee house, uh, you can, it includes, I think, a pair of gloves and a walnut shell and the pin cushion belonging to Mary Queen of Scots and all these kind of whimsical items. So Saltero inspired the character of Covo, but the connection really is a thin one. And I, I, saw, I think about this a lot because there are 
there are so many ways to approach historical fiction. And my style is sort of like dropping an anchor into a historical setting. But the story I write is the ship, and it's quite a long way from the anchor, and it's bobbing on this you know, ocean of fictional devices and characters. So in this context, Voltero really suggested a kind of fairy tale trickster figure to me. And that's what, what Kobo became. And I chose I chose to open with him instead of with my protagonist because he just seemed like such a good person to introduce this world to the reader. He kind of tells us that we're in a place that doesn't play entirely by the rules. We also get almost right away a rather unflattering portrait of Sir Barnaby Maine. Um, we learn that he's powerful, but at least in the opinion of the speaker, a difficult man. How would you describe him? So Sir Barnaby is a collector who is obsessed with his collection. He's been building it for 50 years, and not only is it massive, but it's organized with crazy precision. You know, everything is labeled, everything is recorded in a register. And he, he almost reminds me of, you know, a, a sorcerer who's hidden his soul in an external object. He's, he's encoded himself into his collection, and by the time we meet him, He's, he's inextricable from it. And it sounds really dramatic, but it doesn't feel that different different from the way some of these collectors thought about their collections. I mean, it, it they were obsessive and there were feuds between them as they competed for objects and serious intellectual disagreements about things like whether a huge skull found in Sicily belonged to an elephant or a cyclops. And of course, the biggest issue was what happened to collections after a collector died because they were they wanted to preserve their collections and they saw them as this legacy. So Sir Barnaby is elderly when we meet him and his thoughts are almost entirely on ensuring that his collection, his legacy is, is preserved and remains safe into, into the future. Which uh, brings us to uh, Lady Cecily Kay. Uh, who is your protagonist, and uh, who is she, and what brings her to Sir Barnaby's house? So Cecily Kay is a plant enthusiast, and she has just returned to England after spending some years abroad with her husband, who's a consular officer in in Smyrna, which is the modern-day city of Izmir in Turkey. And in her travels, she's made collections of plants. So she's carefully pressed and dried them, and she's labeled them as as she can, sort of guessing what what these plants she's never seen before, what they could be. So her first stop when she comes back to England is to the house of Sir Barnaby Maine, where she's arranged to spend a week. And she's hoping that within his collection, which includes an entire room of dried plants, uh, that she'll be able to find identifications for all these, these specimens that she's collected. So that's what brings her to the house. Her first encounter with Sir Barnaby is uh, indeed rather daunting, uh, as we might expect from the early description of him. Uh, Set that up for us, please, because it's very early in the book. What happens? So Cecily arrives in the middle of a scene of of chaos in the house. Sir Barnaby's curator has just dropped a specimen jar, and it's filled with preserving liquid, so there's this odor of alcohol giving everyone a headache. The floor is covered in shattered glass. And the specimen, this rare fish, is decomposing in the middle of a puddle on the floor. And this has sent Sir Barnaby into a rage. So he's hurling abuse at his curator. He's rude to Cecily. He's barely civil to another guest. And I think what's important in the scene 
is that we start to see Cecily's disappointment at finding that this place, which she thought would be so focused and scholarly, is is kind of another house full of insecure, angry men. And that's something she kind of thought she left behind with her husband in uh, Smyrna. And unfortunately, she doesn't have a very happy marriage. She's uh, intelligent and she's inquisitive, um, independent, as you just mentioned, because she's left her husband. Um, and opposition just makes her more determined to find answers. Um, obviously, such women existed in history. It's, a, it's a, I think, a modern fantasy to think that independent women only came around in 1950 or something. Oh, 19, not even then, right? 1960s. Um, but my interest is how you developed her as a character. Um, how did you decide as a writer what traits your heroine needed to have? So there is a story behind how I developed Cecily, and it starts out uh, in uh, memory of some panic because for a long time, I mean, months into writing the book, Cecily was very much isolated and on her own in the story. She was, and she was a, as I said, a botanical enthusiast but she was also an illustrator. She had this empirical, logical approach to problems, but she was also kind of roguish and mischievous. mischievous. And I was really having trouble. I, I couldn't get to know her. Uh, she was inconsistent. I was putting her into situations and I, I didn't have a clear sense of how she would re respond. And I was really starting to panic and think like, I don't know if I can write this book. And then one afternoon, I had a phone conversation with one of my closest friends from graduate school. So Anna called and it was just one of those close friend phone conversations that went right into intense subjects. I mean, we were like current events, family stress, career uncertainty, the meaning of life. I mean, one thing after the other and it, a mile a minute conversation with containing a lot of phrases like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of it that way before. You're so right. And at the end of that phone call, I was staring at the wall and it was suddenly so obvious to me what the problem with Cecily was. Uh, and it was that I'd been trying to fit two characters into one. She wasn't one person, she was two. And, and they needed to be able to talk to each other. Um, so that's when Mackin, the other, uh, the other sort of main character in the book, uh, came, in, came into the story. And once I had them both, these two women with different perspectives, both, as you say, based on historical precedent, there, there were independent women at the time pursuing their interests. But once I had them both, everything got a lot easier. Well, that's a perfect lead into my next question, because I was going to ask you about Mackin. Um, she uh, is also married, or although I think in her case she's widowed, right? Um, so mm -hmm. she's Mrs. Mackin Barlow. And uh, tell us about her prior relationship with uh, Cecily and how she how she becomes to be in Barnaby Maine's house. So Cecily and Mackin spent a year together as girls when Cecily's father hired Mackin's father to design uh, new gardens at his estate. So Mackin's father brought his family with him and they stayed in, in a cottage on the estate for the year it took to, to plan and build these gardens. Uh, so there was this year-long friendship when they were 10 and 11 years old but they haven't seen each other or corresponded since that time. And Cecily is surprised to find Mackin in Sir Barnaby Maine's house. And so even though there's familiarity between them from the beginning, they recognize each other. Cecily doesn't, doesn't really know what kind of person Mackin has become. 
There's a wonderful incident very early on where um, Cecily is looking at an illustrated book and she realizes that Mackin has, or Mackin admits actually, that she's added an insect to the collection. And it seemed to me such an encapsulation of the difference in their personalities. Could you talk about uh, the incident from that perspective, how each of them relates to it in different ways? Yes. So, so Mackin, we learn, is, is staying at the main house because so Barnaby has hired her to illustrate a new catalog that he's going to publish of kind of best of the best objects from his collection. And when Cecily encounters her, Mackin's in the middle of adding a kind of fantasy bug illustration to an already published book. And she's doing it as, as a joke and as a little bit of revenge uh, on a collector who, who didn't pay her for her work. And Cecily is just horrified by this. So what the scene conveys is that Mackin doesn't have the reverence for the project of collecting that Cecily does. Cecily is focused on on the value of these this organized information, but Mackin sees and operates within the human side. So she <clears throat> she recognizes a lot of the vanity and the arrogance and the spoiled personalities of many of these rich men indulging their whims, and she isn't above taking advantage of those weaknesses. So at the beginning, Cecily and Mackin are a little bit, a little bit at odds in, in their perspective. Cecily also meets Walter Dinley uh, during her first afternoon in the house, as well as a bunch of other people whom we probably won't have time to get to, but who are important to the story. Uh, he will later play a very important role. So describe him for us, his role at Sir, Sir Barnaby's and um, his personality. So Walter Dinley is a, is a young man, and he's Sir Barnaby curator. And when I came to responsible for essentially secretarial duties, but also maintaining the the collection. And when I came up with the character, I was thinking about how incredibly stressful it would be to be responsible for one of these crazy collections. I mean, thinking of how hard it was just to keep a house, a house, regular house clean and maintained at that time in London with the coal smoke and the city mud and the filth and all the logistics. And then to add to it all this stuff, you know, stuffed birds and skeletons and decomposing fish and moldy plants and fragile shells, it would just be exhausting. And and I should mention here too, the character of Martha, who's the housekeeper, and she and Dinley kind of work together to take care of the collection, but she's been with it almost since the beginning. So she by the time we meet her, she loves it almost as much as Sir Barnaby does. So there's kind of an interesting dynamic between the three of them. But yes, Dinley, Dinley is the beleaguered curator who just has has a really hard job and is struggling earnestly to to do his best at it. I found the house kind of creepy, <laughs> but I have to say it must have been a lot of fun to create. I mean, how did you come up with it? It was really fun, and uh, and I got to do so many fun things to come up with it, from going to uh, museums and particularly the British Museum and really taking notes and, and putting objects from it onto Sir Barnaby's shelves. But also uh, there were collectors from the time who maintained these registers and catalogs of their objects. So I was able to go through them and and read about these very bizarre things that they that they took the time not just to own, but to label. Um, but I'm actually, I'm really glad that it seemed creepy because uh, it's what I was going for 
And it would have been even creepier. I stayed away from the anatomical items that would probably have, have taken up a lot of space on the shelves in real life. Uh, but there's also, I would say here, related to that, it isn't part of the story I told in cabinets, but it's it's there in the history of these collections. There's this tremendous darkness and cruelty within within the legacy of them. You know, many of the items in these early 18th century collections were traveling to England on the same ships that were transporting enslaved people and advancing England's colonial agenda across the world. And a lot of these collections were funded from the wealth of those profits and and really bound up in the whole concept of collecting is this supremacy of Western science and taking things from their places of origin. Uh, so wh- while it was fun to build Sir Barnaby's shelves, it was, it was important to me, even though it wasn't, I wasn't getting into the real world context within the confines of this mystery. I didn't want to glorify the project of collecting uh, for all, for all the curious and intellectually rigorous people who were who were a part of it. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I remember years ago going to uh, Peter the Great's Kunstkamera in uh, what was then Leningrad and is now St. Petersburg again. Oh, um, wow. And it is, I mean, it's so bizarre. To, I mean, you look around at all these, you know, shrunken heads and, you know, body parts and jars, and, and you wonder, what was he thinking, really? Really? Yeah, I'm so with you. There's a murder. And in fact, we know from the book blurb that Sir Barnaby is the one who is murdered. Um, what can you tell us about that without giving away spoilers? So I, I knew from the start that I, was, that I was writing a murder mystery. So it was really a question of, of who I was going to kill off and, and in what manner. And uh, the idea to have the crime take place during a tour of the collection also actually came from, from research. Uh, I, I read an account by a, a Swedish traveler named Per Kalm, who toured a collection during his visit to England, I think in the 1720s. And it, it really came across how exhausted he was and how overwhelmed by how much there was to see. And it, I thought about the universality of that. You know, when you go to a museum that re- has really dense displays on a huge variety of subjects, it's so easy to become disoriented. And I thought about how difficult it would be for people touring a collection to remember the order of the events of the day because of all this stimulation. And I thought about what a great set of circumstances that would be for, for a murderer to, to take advantage of. So that's generally what led to Sir Barnaby meeting his demise um, at the base of his own shelf. And how is he killed? He is stabbed with a uh, mysterious knife that may or may not be part of the collection. So um, there is no doubt, obviously, that he's been murdered. I mean, people don't generally stab themselves, although I suppose it's possible. Um, but most of those involved, including Lady Barnaby, uh, the uh, the victim's wife, um, and who is rather unexpected <laughs> given what we've seen of Sir Barnaby so far, um, Hardly anybody has any, any interest in finding out what happened, uh, except for Cecily. And why is she the one who uh, takes on the job of uh, trying to decide how Sir Barnaby was killed and by whom? So most of the characters in the book 
including including even Mackin, who to some extent is is working with Cecily, care about the murder more insofar as it affects them. So the death the death of a collector causes a huge ripple in the collecting community. So Sir Barnaby's widow is focused on on her inheritance and her what she will get from the collection. And other collectors are focused on what will happen to the objects in the collection. Will they be for sale? Will they be able to be acquired? And Cecily is the only one who really just wants to know what happened. She wants to make sense of contradictory evidence that that points to one person. And she wants the facts to line up. And that's, that's just, it's her personality. It's the same reason she'll sit for hours over a plant identification. And it's, it's why she won't let go until she works it out. And she uh, starts out being kind of alone in that. Okay, so let's leave the plot there. Um, you mentioned early on that you had already done much of the research for this book before you went off to, uh, in literary terms, to China uh, and wrote that story instead. Uh, did you still have to do research for this novel? I did, and it was, it was definitely a challenge to learn enough about, about uh, time and place I knew very little about. Initially, uh, it was hard to learn enough to be able to tell tell the story I, I had in mind and could easily have spent years researching these these collectors and and everything to which they were connected in history. I think honestly because because a, a mystery is necessarily very plot focused, a lot of what I wrote did come from my my imagination and from my working within the tools of that genre. So murder mysteries, they turn on motivations that are human and always have been you know, greed, revenge, romantic jealousy, obsession. And once I found the kinds of things that might have inspired those feelings within this historical setting, I could to some extent let the research go and tell the story and then do sort of very specific, scene-specific research as I needed for how characters would get around through London or what they would be wearing or what they would be eating. So, so that was my approach, which is probably a lot different from Again, there are so many different kinds of historical fiction. What would you like readers to take away from the cabinets of Barnaby, Maine? I mean, really, what mostly what I want readers uh, from readers is that they come away feeling that they've enjoyed a good tale and that they've spent some time in another place and can return to the world rested, rejuvenated, but without having turned their brains completely off. Um, but what I what I look for in a novel when I read as a reader is to emerge from it and see the world that I know in a slightly different way. So I would love for readers to come away from the cabinets of Barnaby Maine thinking a little bit differently about collections and about what they really are and how they're connected to the the collectors who built them. Because really for me, what what I found among these collectors. Uh, was a story about wanting to assert control over the world, uh, a belief that legacy is a form of, of immortality, and also that within every con- collection, there's a mind that's imposing an artificial order on the world. And, and when you do that, you show something about yourself. And I think that's, that's kind of the core of the story I was trying to tell. And where does your literary journey take you next? Are you going back to China? Or are you going to stay in London? Go somewhere else. <laughs> I have t- 
two two books going on at the moment, which is a first for me. Uh, I'm working on a, a sequel to Cabinets that will uh, move the action north to Cecily, where Cecily's from, which is in the north in Durham, and and set her a new uh, adventure, a mystery, a puzzle to solve there. But uh, I'm also letting myself indulge a little bit in a something completely different, a fantasy that I've had in my head for a, a long time. Uh, and since I, I've been in such a different mental space over the past few months, uh, as we all have, I decided it was time to let that idea have a little bit, a little bit of space in my head and just see what happens. So I am stimulated, possibly overstimulated by the various things I'm doing. Well, I wish you all best of luck and thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Elsa Hart about the cabinets of Barnaby, Maine. Find out more about her at www.elsahart.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histific. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.